0: Welcome to the St Emeline's Podcast. I'm Ian Beardsall. And I'm Simon Kelly. In this episode of the podcast, we're going to review our top 10 trauma papers from the last year. Now, Simon, this relates to a talk you've just done at the excellent Trauma Care Conference. Yeah, so this is an annual conference uh, run by Trauma Care UK. And it's a really great conference, actually.
1: It's one of those multi-professional, multi-disciplinary conferences, brings everybody together and looks at the whole trauma
0: pathway, really from the point of injury through to rehabilitation. So you get asked to do the top 10 trauma papers. Now, that's a bit of a mission. There's tens, hundreds maybe of papers. How do you go about choosing the ones that you put into your talk? I've got a fairly well-established way of, of doing this. I have regular
1: PubMed alerts that come. Come out around trauma, brain injury, and emergency medicine in general. But these days, you've also got the ability to go out to other foamed sites such as Rebel EM, the Bottom Line, Recess Me, EM Lit of Note, and of course the stuff we've done on the Centennial site ourselves, because they're essentially acting as a surveillance system for interesting papers that come out. So when I'm putting together a talk, I go and have a look at my PubMed stuff i go and have a look through some
0: journals like the journal of trauma the mj etc and then go and look through the sites and see what comes up so we're going to go through the top 10 papers that we found this year now normally in a podcast we aim to have at most three learning points just because we don't want to overload ourselves when we're doing the podcast we don't want to overload our listeners with learning points now today there's going to be more but hopefully a lot of these papers will be familiar to you. There is a blog post that you can read too. And of course, we'd always recommend that you go back and read the original literature yourself. So this is a whiz through. Simon, top 10, number one, react two. This is the one about whole body CT. Yeah. So
1: there's been a controversy about whether or not we're doing too many whole body CTs and whether or not we can get away with being a little bit more focused and a little bit more selective about which part of the patient that we can actually image. So this is a randomised control trial and it was done very well, really. 1,400 odd patients are randomised on fairly liberal criteria, basically the sort of patients who we'd be consider doing whole body CT, but maybe a bit more than I would do in my normal trauma centre. What they looked at is whether it made any difference to mortality. Because, of course, we know from the past that studies have shown that whole body CT reduces the number of deaths in trauma. Cut a long story short, they found that there was no real difference in mortality. It's an interesting one because if you if you read the study and you read some of the, the news that came out of it, it was all about, oh, well, we can just do focus CT now because it produces less radiation. There's no mortality difference. But then if you really dig into the paper, the difference in actual radiation dose on average between the two groups was tiny. I think I put it through some online calculator that suggested that the difference, if you took a 20-year-old male, you'd cause one extra cancer for about 28,000 scans. So yes, it's a slightly less lower dose if you do focus CT, but in reality, I'm not sure it actually makes that much of a difference. So I'm pretty much going to carry on doing what I'm doing.
0: So I used to be really quite vigilant about which parts I scanned. And I know that I found that very stressful as a trauma team leader. It was another bit of cognitive overload, worrying about the things I might miss. And I know that I'm now scanning more patients. I find this paper a bit reassuring, really, because radiation is a concern. But it seems that there isn't a massive difference whether you choose to do the whole body CT or not. And like you say, I think I'll keep doing what I'm doing, which is generally if the mechanism or the injury pattern seems to fit it, going ahead and doing what we would call that trauma scan. And
1: particularly in the elderly, where it's really obvious now, we're seeing a lot more elderly trauma in the UK, that whole body CT reveals a whole host of conditions, which I think we missed in the past.
0: There is always that question about, if you miss the injury, does it matter? But I think we live in a world where we expect to know what's wrong, even if it's something we're not going to do anything about. And that that relates to how we choose what investigations we're doing. And I see it across the whole emergency department, not just in CT. So React 2, published in The Lancet. A lot of these papers have been published in high-profile journals, one that I'm sure you've read, but worth having another look at and just thinking about how you behave as a trauma team leader or a member of the trauma team and what you're doing with your scanning. The second paper you've got, Simon, was one that actually you were one of the co-authors on. This was about impact brain apnea, something that's been talked about a lot in the FOMED world. I think it has, and we've been talking about it on the blog and the podcast for some time, but it's nice to
1: see it in print. And this is a paper which I've got a special soft spot for, really, because it was published with John Hines posthumously. It's just very good to see this concept of impact brain apnea, where you have a sharp blow to the head, sudden deceleration causing apnea, and a cataclysmic surge which can then lead to death if you don't intervene in it. It's something which has been known about for ages. And and in particular, Mark Wilson helped put this paper together with the anatomical and the old pathophysiological knowledge to explain the mechanisms to understand what's going on. It's something I've seen as a pre-hospital doctor in the past. So I would recommend this paper, not because I've written it, but because I think it's a really good explanation of what we sometimes see in the emergency room. And in particular, those patients, and I'm sure you've seen them as well, they come in and they've had a cardiac arrest traumatic cardiac arrest and you think oh gosh this is an exsanguination you fill them up with blood and you find out that actually they didn't survive but when the autopsy comes back there was no real major bleeding and you sort of think well how could that possibly be the case we think that certainly impact brain apnea may be one of the mechanisms for that
0: indeed this may be part of the puzzle for that hypotensive patient who isn't doing so well but with no bleeding point really interesting paper always interesting to come back to the physiology of injury and I would highly recommend you have a read of it. And there is a podcast with Mark Wilson that we did a couple of years ago at the London Trauma Conference. So seek that out on the feed and you can use that as well to back up your knowledge. A couple of neurosurgical papers next. And these made it into the New England Journal, just showing the prominence of some of these trials. The first one was the RESCUE ICP trial about decompressive craniectomy for refractory raised ICP after head injury. Now, you could argue that this isn't a particularly an
1: emergency medicine one. But on the other hand, we do deal with patients who have severe brain injury. And I think it's very useful for us to understand what happens to them once they leave the emergency department. But in essence, this is about the very severely injured group of patients who have had a brain injury, often a diffuse injury, but who have high levels of intracranial pressure, which doesn't respond to the typical early therapies of intubation, ventilation, and basic drug therapy. And what they essentially do is they take off the skull and allow the brain to expand into the area because, of course, we think of the skull as a closed box. Now, there's some pre- tremendous presentations on this actually from the Critical Care Reviews site. So that's Rob McSweeney running the conference in January. So, if you want to know more about Rescue ICP, there's a great presentation from the lead author on that site. I'd strongly recommend it. But the bottom line in this is that this is a technique which has been used on and off for years. But when they did this study, they've got some better data. It is an RCT. The problem is, they've found that if you do the decompressive craniotomy, you have a much higher number of survivors, but they're not good outcomes. So you're more likely to survive, but you'll survive with disability. The number of people who survive with a good outcome is actually unchanged. And so they've crunched the numbers. And for every 100 patients treated with a craniotomy, you'd expect 22 more survivors. But six would be in a vegetative state. Eight would have a lower severe disability, which is pretty bad. And eight would have an upper severe disability which isn't quite as awful. But it's really that ethical question, really, about whether we should be doing this, knowing that we'll have more
0: survivors, but a greater number of severely disabled ones. And although this is a neurosurgical paper, it seems, I think it's really worth us knowing as emergency physicians what our colleagues in hospital are thinking. If we, when we make the referral, have some awareness of what the literature is saying, and we know what's happening with these sort of advanced techniques, I do believe it helps us. So, I would recommend having a look at papers from all subjects around what we deal with that happen just beyond the recess room, whether that's cardiology, neurosurgery, general surgery, whatever it might be. I think us having that knowledge is really helpful because when you then have the conversation with your inpatient specialty teams, you can have more of an engaged and involved conversation and hopefully come to a good decision for your patient. There was another paper about this called STITCH. Similar sort of thing, but about craniectomy again. So the STITCH trial is another
1: RCT. And this again is looking at whether conservative management is a good idea for patients with intracranial traumatic bleeds or whether you should do early surgery. Now, clearly this isn't in patients who've got a massively expanding extradural and pop in their pupils. This is for patients where there was clinical equipoise amongst the neurosurgeons about whether they should operate or not. I guess that speaks to me that there's still an awful lot of clinical judgment and patient assessment and a gestalt, if you want to call it that, about whether or not people go for surgery. And I sometimes have those conversations and I have that experience when I'm referring patients to neurosurgery. It was an interesting study, partly because it was funded in the UK, but they, they recruited very few people in the UK, perhaps because people didn't feel that there was so much clinical uncertainty in our trauma systems. And so they actually closed this study early because most of the patients were recruited out of the UK. Having said that, so when you look at the Glasgow outcome scores for these patients, there was actually a significant benefit from early treatment as opposed to delayed treatment. It wasn't statistically significant, so I don't think we can say too much about it. But that was matched by the secondary outcome of mortality, which was statistically significant and showed about an 18% difference. It's a tricky one, really. It Again, it suggests to me that early intervention is probably a good idea, although it is a degree of uncertainty still. It's just a shame that it was ended
0: early. And it comes back to the idea with a lot of our treatments that we can stop people dying but what is the life that we're committing them to if we manage to do that and I think advanced pre-hospital medicine more recess stuff That is definitely something we're going to have to think about more in the future. The next paper you looked at, Simon, was one about traumatic cardiac arrest statistics. Look in the epidemiology and how that's been going over recent times using the TARN database.
1: If you hang out in FOMED and you listen to a lot of podcasts, you'll think that traumatic cardiac arrests and thoracotomies are an everyday event in UK trauma centres. And the fact is, they're not. This study looks at the TARN database, so the Trauma Audit and Research Network, great database from 2009 to 2015. During that time, they had just under a quarter of a million people entered on the database, but only 705 of those met the criteria for traumatic cardiac arrest. And interestingly, their overall 30-day survival rate was 7.5%. It's really interesting, actually. It tells me that a couple of things, really. One is that that survival rate isn't that different to medical cardiac arrest in the UK, which isn't the way that people often think about it. They often think that traumatic cardiac arrest is almost a futile event. Well, it's not. You work hard on your medical patients, you should be working equally hard with your traumatic patients. But it also begs the question about frequency and therefore expertise around these groups. Now, if you're flying a helicopter in London, I know that you see a lot of these patients in the HEMS service. But if you're in a rural area, the chance of you seeing a patient in a traumatic cardiac arrest where you can actually survive is going to be a very infrequent event, which present significant issues around training and retention
0: of skills. Again, a hot topic in FOMED that you're right. We would imagine that this is happening every single day. 700 in seven years is not exactly an everyday occurrence, is it? But it is something we need to know about. It's a high-impact procedure. It's one that we have a lot of stress around. And you can make a difference. You can really change those lives. The other interesting thing was that they found very
1: few survivors who were both in cardiac arrest at the scene and also in hospital. And of course... When you look at this data, to get into the TAN database, you've got to get to hospital. So, of course, clearly more than 705 people died of trauma within that time. And some of them will have been arrested at the scene, but they may not have been transported to hospital because they could have been declared dead at scene.
0: As you say, the FOMED world concentrates a lot, perhaps, on these high-impact procedures where we can make a real difference to some patients But this really does emphasise that this isn't happening every day. It's not even happening every couple of weeks. In fact, most centres may not see this more than a couple of times a year. But it's a skill we have to retain just in case. And I think that is the big challenge to deal with with traumatic cardiac arrest. The next paper was from the Journal of Trauma, which does relate a bit to the, the last one. It talks about open chest cardiac massage versus closed chest compressions in patients with traumatic cardiac arrest. Now, if you listen to podcasts or you read blog posts, the feeling very much is that there's no point doing closed chest compressions in patients with traumatic cardiac arrest. But I'm not sure this paper from the Journal of Trauma and Acute Care Surgery really bears that out. No, it is observational, but it is from a very well-respected centre in the US. And what
1: they did is they used a proxy of the success of cardiopulmonary resuscitation to determine whether open or closed seem to be working well. So they looked at end tidal CO2. And we know that end tidal CO2 is a marker of the effectiveness of CPR. And what they found, essentially, is that it didn't matter whether you're doing closed compressions or open compressions, you still got similar levels of end CO2. You're right, that's in contrast to what we've said on the blog, it's in contrast to what we've put in our protocols, that if somebody's in traumatic cardiac arrest, a thoracotomy and internal heart massage is the way forward. But that might not be the case. I think where this goes is some other papers, which I've not included in this list of 10, but I could have done, around the issues about things like ROBOA which is a technology which, again, we all think is fantastic and all very thrilling and exciting. But actually, the evidence base for it is pretty poor. And that is going to be a problem. If you put these two papers together, it's always going to be a problem to get high quality evidence about something which is pretty rare. We are going to have to use our pathophysiological arguments
0: and observational data that we can get to help guide us. And as we've said before, there may be times when you choose to do chest compressions in these patients It can be very difficult for nursing staff and others in the recess room when you suddenly say, oh, no, don't bother doing chest compressions unless you've had proper education about why you might be doing that. And this paper sort of says, well, that might not be the right thing anyway. So there's human factors involved. There's so few patients that we're never really going to know the proper answer to this without that observational data. So for me, this paper and
1: the previous one tells me that if I think there's something which can be done via access to the chest, so doing a thoracotomy and there's a reason to do it, absolutely crack on and do it. But if I think it's a medical cause of the cardiac arrest, but they just happen to have crashed their car at the time, then maybe I'll just follow ALS guidelines.
0: Now, the next one also in the FOMED world and online causes an awful lot of navel gazing. Something that I've really struggled to get enthusiastic about, this idea of, is rocuronium better than succinylcholine for laryngoscopy during RSI? Is this something you've had strong feelings about, Simon? Where do you think the evidence takes us for this?
1: Oh, well, it's that phrase, isn't it? Rock, rock, suck, sucks. Well, maybe. You know, both of these drugs have their problems, and one pharmacologically is not absolutely fantastically better than the other. They have different profiles. Rocky Rome's got a higher influence of anaphylaxis. Sucamothonium raises your potassium and causes muscle movement and an increased energy consumption, etc., and might increase your ICP. There isn't hard quality data in the sort of patients that we see in the in the research room that often. We have flipped backwards and forwards. I think I'm more of a rocuronium sort of person these days. I do tend to use rocuronium. I'm fairly convinced by the pathophysiological arguments in most cases, but not all. I used succismethonium last week, as it happens. So what this paper did is looked at, and it is an observational study, so it's not the highest quality of evidence out there. It's certainly not an RCT. Is looked at whether there was an association between the use of succinylcholine or rocuronium in patients with severe brain injury who were intubated in the ED. Now, I put it here because it's interesting and it's a topical subject, but overall, there was no difference. There really was no difference in the mortality between these two groups. But in the patients with the severe head injury, which is a smaller number, again, there were only 260 patients in the study, the mortality was really quite a lot different. It's 44% versus 23%. So that's doubling of it. And there's a pathophysiological argument that if you've got a severe brain injury, Probably got a high rate degree of ICP. You then give sucks, it makes it even higher. Now, I think it's interesting. It's observational. It kind of fits with what I believe, but the level of evidence here and the quality is not super high. So I wouldn't change your practice directly on this, but it's another one pushing us in the direction that perhaps rocuronium is our preferred choice. But there will be situations where sucks is better. For instance, in fitting patients, perhaps, who you might want to know whether they're still fitting. So you actually want the paralysis to wear off fairly quickly.
0: We're getting to the last couple of papers in our top 10. The next one was about what size IO needle you need to use in patients who are on the large side. Yeah, so we're seeing a gradual rise, aren't we, in the size of our
1: population in more ways than just the number of them. But actually, they're getting bigger and bigger. And bariatric trauma, so patients who are obese and also injured, present quite a lot of problems now in the emergency department. There's basic issues like, do they fit on the spine board? Do they fit on the trolley? Can they actually physically go through the CT scanner? And now issues that we're facing problems with. But during the resuscitation phase as well, things like access to the chest or access to vascular compartments can be difficult in the overweight patient. And so this was interesting looking at the use of interosseous infusions. What this paper did is looked at whether or not the length of the needles which we traditionally use for io is actually long enough and essentially what they've found is that once you get over a bmi of 43 then the standard blue io needle which is about 25 millimeters long probably isn't going to be big enough and you should just go straight for the yellow one that's the yellow one that we traditionally use in the humerus and you can use that in other locations as well just
0: got to be a bit careful that you don't go out the other side of the tibia io is clearly a technique which is really really helpful in, in these circumstances this is about using the right piece of equipment for the patient in front of you and it's also about then checking afterwards there are instances where you can get compartment syndrome if you go through and the infusions going into the calf so you've got to be careful afterwards it's a case of using that technique in the emergency situation and then checking that things aren't going wrong afterwards it's always being vigilant in the recess room despite everything else that's going on around you the next one was about a needle choice again this time it was about decompressing tension pneumothoraces
1: yeah i was hoping that this was a paper that would put to bed a long 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 running debate about where to decompress tension pneumothorax and there's a couple of ways of thinking about this the first is that is needle thoracostomy really the ideal way to decompress a tension pneumothorax or should you just proceed to do a thoracostomy well not if the patient's spontaneously breathing, you shouldn't, do a put a needle is better. But where should you put it in? And there's been controversy about whether you put it in the mid-clavicular line, the anterior axillary line or the mid-axillary line for a long period of time. What we've got in this paper is 15 studies put together as a systematic review and a meta-analysis, which looks at where the most successful place to go is and also some of the complications. And to cut a long story short, you're best going in the anterior axillary line which is pretty much where chest strains in these days anyway. That's where the recommendation from this paper goes. But also, it was quite sobering actually to read this, particularly when You see people who say, well, you can put it in anywhere if you put a big, long, big needle in. Well, yes, you can, but there is a significant complication rate with these techniques. So in some studies, as high as 9% that you can get problems by putting just a tension pneumothorax needle decompression in. So maybe just a big needle and a good, strong arm isn't the answer, and we should be a bit more selective about where we put it in.
0: Finally, we come to paper number 10 in our top 10, and this was politically a rather hot potato Many of us in the UK have been struggling a bit with this idea of a seven day service and weekends and whether or not patients are less likely to do well at a weekend. And this looks specifically at whether there was a weekend effect for major trauma.
1: Yeah, so this is Dave Metcalfe and colleagues looking across 22 UK major trauma centres about whether or not there was an increase in mortality amongst trauma patients, major trauma patients, depending on whether you came in at the weekend or during the week. What it basically says is there is not that much of a difference. And politically at the time when this paper came out, it was hilarious because people said, oh, well, in which case there's no weekend effect and we don't need to upskill at the weekends with other services. Maybe that might be right. But another way of interpreting this, and I think the way that I look at it, is that trauma has changed enormously over the last five to 10 years in the UK. And we now have a service which is consultant-led 24-7 in the major trauma centres. So what this paper says is if you have a condition and you resource it properly and you have the same cover at the weekend as you have during the week... There is no weekend effect. So to me, this almost says that what we need to do is basically when the sickest patients come to the hospital, whether it be trauma or medicine, we need to be appropriately resourced, staffed, and capable of dealing with them, irrespective of the time or the day of the week.
0: This paper says to me that we should have teams for all of those life-threatening conditions we see in the emergency department, because clearly they do better, whether that's trauma, whether that's sepsis, whether that's cardiological, and really makes the argument that we should have senior teams led by senior emergency physicians or others available 24-7. The way I read this is actually we should follow the trauma model and actually upskill all of the other stuff, not go back down to the way it is for the other conditions. But perhaps I'm just the other end of the political spectrum, and clearly there's other things going on that people are worried about.
1: Yeah, and we have to be able to do that within a system which is actually capable of delivering it. That was your top 10. I don't know about you, Ian, but in a way, I was a little bit disappointed this year that there weren't those real
0: game changer papers that we've seen in previous years. It was quite quite a lean year, I thought, for high quality evidence in trauma. A lean year, but obviously some papers are making it into those high impact journals, the New England Journal and the Lancet. And really, maybe we're expecting too much. If we can just get two, three papers a year that are really going to change what we're doing, I'd be happy with that not least because just getting those two or three papers into our practice takes a huge amount of effort. At FOMED World, we're trying to do our bit to make sure that people know about these things, but then to translate that into the trauma centres, the trauma units, and make them happen. Perhaps if we had more papers with more research and more findings, maybe we would struggle not just to keep up, but to make them happen.
1: Okay, so we'll put the blog together with the podcast, so you can go and have a look at there. We've got links to all the papers, including some uh, reviews on the St. Emeline site and reviews on other sites like Rebel AM. I think for next year, there's a few other papers which are on the horizon. So things like CRASH-3, which is tranexamic acid in head injury. be interesting to see if that comes out next year. And there's a few others which are starting to recruit soon, like Cryostat. Although this may have been a lean-ish year, I think there's some really interesting studies on the horizon.
0: But exciting times ahead. Trauma care is definitely improving in the UK. We can be sure that things will continue to get better over the next few years. Thanks again for listening and take care.